You're listening to Pod of Wonder, the podcast that builds a world using random Wikipedia articles and then plays a game in that world. This season, it's divine felines and canines, a pantheon where every god is either a cat or a dog, metaphorically speaking. Hello, Wanderers. This week, I've got something special for you. A day after we recorded our last episode on Angelique, aka lesbian Sherlock Holmes, I saw a one-page RPG called Be Gay, Solve Crimes by Oliver Darkshire. So this week, I'm going to be playing that game. I mean, come on, that's practically fate. How Be Gay, Solve Crimes works is you play a detective with an attractive assistant, and you've been called upon to solve a murder. You have three scores, murder, suspicion, and tension. You roll a six-sided die to determine what happens, either another murder or an intimate moment with your assistant, and that moves up one or more of your scores. Each time your murder score goes up, one of the eleven pre-made suspects is killed. If your suspicion score reaches ten, you solve the murder by picking one of the remaining suspects. If your tension score reaches 10, you can no longer resist your attractive assistant. You fall into each other's arms, but the murder goes unsolved. If your murder score reaches 10, then there's only one suspect left, so you've technically solved the murder, but in the shittiest way possible. I've played a couple of one-player games for this podcast, and usually I try to be as close to live as I can get it. Taking things scene by scene, no planning, building off of what I came up with in the moment. This one I'm going to be doing a little differently. Since this game has a couple of different ways it can end, and because Sherlock Holmes is a literary character, I rolled all the prompts first and wrote out a narrative story based on the roles. I'll talk a bit more about what that process went like later, but for now, I have a lesbian Sherlock Holmes story for you. And home stories are usually written from the assistant's point of view, aren't they? Detective Angelique was neither a late sleeper nor an early riser. She said it seemed normal and human to wake up naturally, without an alarm, sometime between the hours of 8 and 9 a.m. However, this day she slept in until nearly noon, and had advised me to do the same the night before. An invitation had arrived at our shared bachelor pad, inviting us well, Angelique and a plus one, to dinner, hosted by one Bartholomew Miserly. She looked over my shoulder, quite close, as we read the missive together. The guest list was a veritable who's who of the underground upper crust, and I had expected to see in her at least a hint of the bedazzlement I was feeling. But Angelique was as unflappable as ever. Her fingertips briefly brushed mine as she took the invitation from my hand and stared at it with a curious gaze as if she was looking at something far off in the distance rather than the paper in front of her. After a minute, she said, Well, Catson, what say you to a night out? I'm certain it will be an exciting evening. I was certain I was blushing, and so I put on a large grin in hopes of hiding it. Sounds great, I said. A night out with Angelique. We so rarely had a chance to go out together. Just a couple of gal pals out on the town and at the miserly mansion with some of the most prestigious people in the city. Angelique was cool as always, but I could tell she was looking forward to it too. It was sure to be a night to remember. Of course we were late leaving. 
I had stayed in my room trying on outfit after outfit, eventually setting on a teal, knee-length dress with a pattern of gold flowers falling in two lines down the front, with a matching scarf. I wore a gold metal band with a teal sapphire just above my forehead, adding a bit of color to my short brown hair, and the look was finished off with a pair of white gloves. Angelique always insisted on wearing gloves in order to avoid contaminating crime scenes, and I quickly picked up the habit as well. We have a way of coming across crime scenes if we aren't already actively seeking one out. I must have lost track of time, because before I realized it, we were already over an hour late from the scheduled dinner. I rushed out of my room, shouting, Angelique! And at precisely the same time, she was exiting her room, wearing her trademark gray overcoat and looking entirely unconcerned. Shall we go? she asked. We began to make our way to the miserly mansion, and with some effort I was able to push Angelique into a pace just short of a swift walk. I pressed upon her the importance of punctuality, especially with so many important and influential people waiting. Honestly, Katzen, there's no rush. We've already missed the main event, but there'll be enough going on tonight as it is. We will arrive precisely when we are needed. We must have indeed missed the main event, because the atmosphere around the miserly mansion was strange when we arrived. With not even so much as a doorman to take our coats or check our invitations, we let ourselves in. Following the sounds of some commotion, we made our way towards a parlor. There we found nearly a dozen people, clearly guests based on their elegant and distinct outfits, along with a few household staff, gathered in a circle around a fine stone desk near the rear wall. As one, they turned their faces towards us. Expressions unreadable. I cleared my throat and put on my most professional voice. Good evening. My name is Dr. Katzen, and my companion is the brilliant Detective Angelique. We were invited to a party this evening by... The guests parted their circle then, revealing Bartholomew miserly, face down on the desk, hand with a rigor mortis grip on a highball glass. Angelique barked out a command. Stand aside! The group moved aside as Angelique made her way to the desk and bent over to sniff the contents of Miserly's glass. <laughs> poisoned. By Pitohi, this man has been poisoned. Everyone, stay put. Katzen, start collecting statements. This is now a murder investigation. It always takes my breath away when Angelique goes from calm and collected to taking control of a situation. She started examining the body in the crime scene, while I took the guests back to the dining room and began taking statements. The party had commenced with a fine dinner, but afterwards broke for a brief break before plans to have drinks in the parlor. When the guests arrived at the appointed time, they found Miserly in his current position, and we had arrived only shortly after. I took out the notebook that I always carry with me, and wrote down anything suspicious or inconsistent for Angelique to follow up on later. I had interviewed maybe half of the guests when we were interrupted by a loud scream. I asked the guests to remain put, and instructed the newly located doorman to ensure that they did so. I then ran out in the hallway to meet up with Angelique. We followed the sound outside to a large garden on the grounds of the Miserly Estate. Bartholomew Miserly kept an intricately curated and cultivated collection of fungi, mosses, and liverworts, even a few bioluminescent species a testament to his taste and resources. And it was there among the faint glow that we found a figure face down on the ground, motionless. Angelique and I ran to the scene and found the figure was dressed in a plaid button-down shirt and jeans. Perhaps the gardener? 
They were face down in a smooth basalt mocajete, and as we moved the body and wiped away a delicious-looking sauce, I found that I recognized the face. This was Deirdre Crabs, the lumberjack pensioner. Famous scion of the crab family, she chose to pursue a life of effort, cutting down the thick stems of giant mushrooms and hauling them back herself to donate as food and furnishings to those in need. She dresses like a laborer, but judging from the fine quality of clothing, the victim was quite well off. At this, I took a second glance at Miss Crabs. While the overall affect was of the working class, her clothes were clearly a fine make, perfectly tailored to fit her muscular frame, with black opal buttons on the front and sleeves. She had attended the party, but clearly found the fare lacking. She appears to live a very active life, which necessitates a protein-rich, high-calorie diet. I do so love when Angelique makes suppositions out loud. While the rest of the group split up after dinner, she went to the pantry to avail herself of Miserly's generosity. Not wanting to be seen snacking by the rest of the guests, she went in the opposite direction, outside. And that is when the attacker made their move. She gestured towards the basalt tejolote embedded in Krabs' face. Angelique got up and began pacing around the garden, making recreations and imagining alternatives in her head. It was only then that I noticed that she had shed the grey overcoat she had worn thus far, and I finally got a chance to see what she had decided to wear to the party. Angelique was dressed in a sleek, plum-coloured suit with spiralling silver stitching at the sleeves. It was slightly looser-fitting, allowing for freedom of movement, and making her slender frame seem larger without appearing baggy or boxy. Her shoulder-length blonde hair had been hastily tied back into a low ponytail, but already a few strands had come loose to frame her angular face, and whipped in the air a fraction of a second after she made an abrupt about-face look at me. I had been staring, and she had noticed. Is something amiss? Somewhat flustered, I hastened to put myself together. Oh, no, none at all. Uh, aside from the murders, I mean. These things do seem to have a habit of following us, don't they? Angelique began to close the distance between us. That they do. Does it trouble you? I would be lying if I said it did not. Such grisly affairs that expose the darkest parts of humanity. They do at that. Sometimes detective work feels like a grand game, such as the intricate crimes of Goriarty, or the clever repartee with Miss Sadler. I could not help but frown somewhat at the mention of those two intellectual equals to Angelique, and with whom she shared a deep, if fraught, connection. Perhaps sensing my discomfort, Angelique continued, But it is in these darker times, with crimes of passion and greed, the garden variety, pun intended, I consider it a bit of good fortune that they constantly seem to happen around the underground's greatest detective, and there's nobody I would rather have at my side, then, than the underground's most persistent assistant. Angelique is a person of few emotions, but when they do surface, they are strong ones. Ennui, gravity, righteousness, despair. Earnestness was a new one to me, and there's nowhere else that I would rather be. I reached out, tentatively, and I believed Angelique started to as well, but we both started at another scream from within the mansion. Without a word, we quickly made our way inside. While we had been making our investigation in the garden, the guests had become unruly at their confinement. One of them, doubtlessly used to having their way, forced their way past the doorman, and the rest began to follow suit. We followed the noises upstairs, to where the guests had been intending to spend the night before the murder had ruined those plans. 
Some were clearly already in the middle of packing before they had been interrupted by the screaming as well and rushed to see what had occurred. We pushed past them and onto the scene and saw a middle-aged woman slumped up next to the bed. I recognized Therese Vivienne, a famous poet and vegan who I had yet to interview before the discovery of Deirdre Crabs. She had long curly hair slightly graying at the fringes and wore a wide patchwork dress with each panel a different fabric. She also had three razor-sharp shuriken embedded in her chest. The metal stars glistened as blood ran down their points and pooled on the floor around Vivienne. Angelique stared at the body for a moment, but made no move closer to examine it. After a moment, she turned to the assembled crowd and snapped, That is enough! This is the third murder to occur this evening. Yes, the third. I regret to inform you that Miss Deirdre Crabs lies dead in the garden as I speak. I do not know for what motivation these murders are occurring, but rest assured I will find out, and bring the killer to justice that they so richly deserve. All of you will stay within the confines of this mansion until my investigation is concluded. Anybody who flees will be presumed guilty of several murders. I am in close contact with Inspector Gestrad and his hundreds of armed officers throughout the city. Now get the fuck out of here and let me work. Angelique remained still until all the guests had filed out. But rather than moving towards the body, she moved further into the room and out onto the balcony overlooking the garden. She placed her hands on the railing and sighed deeply. This is the third murder tonight, and at least the first since I arrived. I'm not sure when exactly Deirdre Crabs was killed, but we saw this woman alive earlier tonight. I could understand somebody committing a murder or two thinking that the famous detective didn't show up. But after? It's brazen, borderline reckless, a dare, a challenge. I joined her out on the balcony and placed my hand atop hers on the railing. It used to be the mere sound of my name was enough to make criminals surrender. Has my reputation fallen so low? Angelique, no. Perish the thought. It is not you, it is this group. The wealthy elite have a vast sense of entitlement. They expect to get things their way and think themselves free of consequences. But if any here truly doubt your skill, they will doubt no longer once you have discovered and apprehended the murderer. I would not be surprised if the perpetrator tries to buy you off once they have been discovered, though. She closed her eyes and was silent for a moment. When she came back to me, she seemed to have taken some small comfort in my words. Yes, you're right. I know how this is going to end. It's just a matter of finding all the threads and tying them together. We took a moment to share our notes on the case thus far. Angelique had pointed out some commonalities in the murders, as well as a vague profile of the type of person who might commit them. I told Angelique what I had learned from the guests I was able to interview, and filled her in on some of the basics, including any publicly known feuds. Since partnering up with her, in detective work I mean, it has become my job to be the social face of our duo. I would not think it unfair to say that Angelique has an awkward manner about her. When we first met, it seemed she knew so little of the world. I now know that it's just that she is more interested in systems and experiences than she is people, for which I cannot fault her. The discussion and sorting of information seemed to have calmed Angelique down, as it always does. As we vowed to approach the case with new vigor, I gave her a wink and said, We will solve this. Our ship has not yet sailed. 
She paused then, a pondering look on her face. Our ship. Angelique seems oddly unfamiliar with common idioms at times, so I began to explain what it meant when she said, I know just who we need to talk to. We made our way to the parlor, where Bartholomew Miserly's body still sat face down at his desk. Lounging on a chair perpendicular to it was Fifi Debonair. Fifi Debonair was a notorious pirate. She made a fortune raiding boats and trains traveling between cities, and evaded capture by disappearing into the networks of caverns and waterways that only she knew so well. Rumor has it the government once offered her a full pardon and government pension if she stopped her piracy. She declined, but offered to only raid privately owned vessels from now on, in exchange for a pardon for her crew once she retired. It was unknown if that counteroffer was accepted, but Fifi has upheld her end of it regardless. Fifi had draped her legs over the side of a chair, alternating between sipping from a cup of amber liquid and tossing a knife up in the air and catching it. A jangling sound accompanied each movement as her jewelry, bracelets, and other bits of metal clacked together. I knocked on the doorframe to get her attention, and Angelique suddenly pushed me aside. The knife that Debonair had been juggling was embedded in the doorframe, precisely where my head had been a second before. She was standing now, and while she did not put down her drink, she had drawn another knife from somewhere within her red brocade coat. Seeing Angelique and I, she lowered the blade. Ah, the great detective. Ed plus one. Can I offer you a drink? While it is not quite mine to give, I have a feeling the owner will not mind. She said, gesturing with her glass towards Miserly. I must decline, Miss Debonair. I do not drink when I am on a case. As you wish, mon pour moi. Now, do what do I owe the honor? I'm curious as to why you're here alone with the late Mr. Miserly. Some guests are choosing to remain in their rooms, or at least rooms without a murder victim in them. Somebody must remain with the body. Miserly was a friendly acquaintance, so I do not mind this job. And besides, I am sure most guests would be concerned that a dangerous pirate should be allowed to run free, pillaging the mansion. Can you blame them for that? I understand you're well-known and quite wealthy, but the way you have achieved those things might put you at odds with some of the other guests. Ah, uh, not as much as you might think. They captain industries, I captain ships. They do their raids in meeting rooms or the marketplace, I do mine in the deep. The big difference, I think, is that I am more honest in calling my actions what they are. And I am much more fun at parties, she said, pouring herself another drink from one of Miserly's bottles. Yes, that's what I mean. Because your actions are more brazen and illegal, I wonder if they might invite a similar brazen illegal response in kind. Fifi's posture shifted at this, from that of one passive but ready to strike into something more genuinely relaxed. Ah, I see. You come to me not as a potential suspect, but a potential victim. Why, detective, I did not know you cared about a criminal such as myself. Angelique did not take the bait. My assistant informed me that you are well acquainted with the late Miss Krabs. Do you have any reason to believe that anybody here tonight meant her harm? I do not know. Deirdre was well liked by all who knew her. She was not involved in her family business, and so could not be responsible for any harm they might have done. It is possible she was killed as a threat to me, but I do not think it would be a particularly effective one. Why would it be a threat to you? 
She and I were lovers for a time, when she was aboard my ship. It was brief, but meaningful. It has been over for some time, though, and before you ask, it ended amicably. No bad blood between us. And also before you ask, yes, that does mean I am available. She twirled a ringlet coquettishly. I inserted myself into the conversation at this point. Do you believe anybody here wishes ill of you? Most would, I think, for one reason or another. My pirates could have harmed any of them, directly or indirectly. But these people, money chasers, fame seekers, they are so petty. She began to stride towards Angelique and I then. They bury their motivations and methods behind sweet words, but they hide their knives. Fifi was close now, and she reached towards Angelique's face. You may not know there is a threat until the knife is already in your back, and plucked the knife she had thrown out from the doorframe. I carry my knives openly. But if someone meant to target me, they could simply target me. I am here alone. My ship and crew are back at port. You sailed here, then? We oui, a few days ago. Angelique muttered something about that not lining up and said, That should be all that I need for now, Miss Debonair. Thank you for your time. Please, call me Fifi. Thank you, Miss Debonair. I said. We left the parlor, and she took a long drink from her glass. Shortly after we left the parlor, we saw a strange figure ambling towards us. They were dressed in a yellow top hat, jauntily askew, and matching yellow blazer, worn open, with no shirt or top of any sort underneath. Heavily applied mascara had begun to run down their rounded face, likely applied that way on purpose. A black skirt and red floral pattern, high in the front and low in the back, fluttered behind them as they made a crooked walk down the hallway. They stopped just short of us and leaned in close, closer than even Miss Debonair had been. Hey, hey, I've been looking for you. Can you keep a secret? Well, if the information is relevant to a case, we can up to a certain point. But eventually we may need to... Cool, 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 There's been another murder. They leaned back, searching our faces for signs of shock. They found only exasperation. Well, take us to it then. They turned and began to lead us deeper into the mansion, and, unprompted, started to monologue on the way. The name's Lord Vibes. I'm kind of a mood leader, a clout boss, notoriety queen. I decide what's popular. I do a thing, or eat a thing, and wear a thing, and other people do it, just because I do it. Isn't that weird? I some, sometimes people pay me to make a thing popular, and that's pretty sway. I get money, they get to be popular. It's all just a vibe. Hey, that's like me, Lord Vibes. Mercifully, we arrived at the crime scene. We had walked through the entire mansion and out to a back door where somebody could theoretically exit without being seen. So I came out here to face Huff, Vibes said, patting a hollowed-out stalactite they wore in a large belt slung over their shoulder. This thing can smoke up a place pretty bad, so most people tell me to do it outside. 
and so I go outside. They continued to talk while Angelique and I examined the body. It was hidden in the bushes adjacent to the outside of the mansion, and may have gone entirely unnoticed for weeks if Lord Vibes hadn't stumbled upon it. I immediately recognized it as Madame de Splat. She was tall, but it was difficult to judge her build because her body was concealed by several layers of colorful scarves. Her bald head was surrounded by a pool of blood because jutting out from her neck was a feather stick. Its shaved wooden curls spiraled out and upward in a display that would have almost been pretty if not for the foul deed associated with it. The splat was a psychic, or at least claimed to be one. I had the chance to interview her earlier, and while she hadn't known anything useful at the time, she did offer her assistance. I politely declined. Angelique has expressed a dislike of the supernatural when it comes to solving cases. Obviously, in a world like ours, with many highly specific gods, complete mundanity is impossible. But as Angelique is fond of saying... Once you have eliminated the impossible, then you can only have the possible, and a human mind can figure out anything possible. We spent a few minutes examining the scene and talking over possibilities, and since it had worked so well last time, I gave Angelique another wing to say, you've got this, and she returned it, as if to say, no, we've got this. And so I says to Chunk, I says, that's really more of a mood than a vibe. I'm not Lord Moods, you know. What? What? Thank you, Lord Vibes. That should be all that we need from you. Actually, your lordship, one more question. Are you an especially religious person? Nah, not more than anybody else, anyway. Living in a world with as many highly specific gods as we do. Why? So it hasn't happened yet, then. No particular reason. Bye. Sway. Vibes ignited a bundle of dried herbs, dropped it into the stalactite, and pressed their face into the opening to form a tight seal. We left their lordship to their... face-huffing, and made our way back into the mansion. I found some small hope in Angelique's confidence amidst all the grim business. My anticipation of a fancy night out, hobnobbing with society elites with my best gal pal had been dashed. But she still managed to find her way back into good spirits, whereas mine had been steadily drifting downward. I put on my best face naturally, but this evening had been difficult. If Angelique was confident she had this all but solved, well, then she was truly great in a number of ways. We had stopped by a wall sconce, and in the candlelight Angelique's eyes shimmered. An almost otherworldly purple iris, with a flickering flame of a candle reflected within them. I was utterly enchanted. Angelique, when all this is over, do you think we could, you and I, I mean, get a late dinner? I really wish I had taken your suggestion and stopped from takeout on the way over. There was a queer sort of fluttering in my lower half, perhaps hunger, but it was all I could do to stabilize myself by leaning against the sconce. I heard a quiet clicking sound, and a portion of the wall next to me swung in slightly. A secret door? I pushed it further inward, revealing a dimly lit passageway. Aha! Doubtless this is how our perpetrator is committing murders all over the mansion without being seen. Let's see where it leads. We proceeded cautiously through the passageway, in case the killer was moving in from the opposite direction. We hadn't been in it for more than a minute or two when we came across a grisly, but at this point not unexpected, sight. Another dead body. 
An older man in a simple tailored gray suit lay against the wall of the passageway. There were some signs of struggle, and tightly wrapped over his nose and mouth was a plastic wrapper from some kind of pastry. Angelique removed the wrapper with her gloved hand, and once I saw the full face I had to think back to the guest list. There were only a few names that I didn't know, and by process of elimination concluded that this must be Cecil Cashwallow. He was not nearly as public a figure as the other guests, but he's said to be very wealthy. He's known for investing a lot of money into businesses in a variety of fields, and for supporting up-and-coming talent. He's also known for being very demanding about how those beneficiaries spend that money, and how soon they need to pay him back with interest. Theoretically, any of the guests could have caused to harm Cashwallow if he threatened their interests or finances, so it was a matter of figuring out who would want to move against him as well as the other victims. I asked Angelique if she had noticed the same thing that I did. Indeed I did, my dear Katzen. My dear? Oh. That particular clue was going to be the key to solving this entire case. In fact, I've already narrowed down the list of suspects considerably. There's just one more person I need to talk to. We emerged from the secret passageway behind the stairs leading up to the second floor. I don't think it was any faster than moving through the mansion normally, but it certainly would allow one to do it without being seen. Angelique strode through the mansion with purpose, looking for somebody in particular. After poking her head into a few rooms, she eventually found two people standing in front of a doorway. One a colorfully dressed young woman, the other a bland-looking older man. They didn't seem to have much to say to each other. Excuse me, friends. I'm looking for Diana Foxington Trow. Have you seen her? The bland man replied, Yeah, she's right inside, and moved aside as he opened the door for us. We found ourselves in what must have been Miserly's study. The walls were lined with books and art pieces, and a large velvet chair faced an elaborately sculpted heating unit. A short, broad woman was dealing in front of an impromptu altar on a side table. She was dressed in a white suit, though she had discarded the blazer on the chair behind her, revealing a black button-down shirt and a brown leather vest. We kept a respectful distance while she finished her ritual. She was clearly aware of our presence, but made no hurry to greet us. Eventually, she snuffed out the question-mark-shaped incense stick, stood up, and put back on her blazer and wide-brimmed brown leather hat. Then she walked towards us, hand extended. Howdy, detective. The name's Diana Foxington Trow. My apologies for not introducing myself sooner. I understand you've been preoccupied, and I didn't want to get in your way. Thank you for your consideration, Miss Foxington Trow. I admit the case has been a bit trying, especially since we missed the dinner. Solving cases can be hard enough even on a full stomach. Oh, you missed a heck of a meal. Almost put what we serve at the ranch to shame. Almost, she said, giving a big grin. I noticed Angelique's eyes were wandering. She was taking in as much of the scene and the person we were talking to as she could, so I took the lead in order to cover for her. Ah, you're that Diana Foxington Trow, I said. The butcher heiress. Oh, please. Butcher heiress makes me sound like a serial killer. I am a second-generation meat industry entrepreneur. I apologize if we're interrupting your prayer. Was that an altar to one of the change gods? Yeah, Tolga. 
I'm just asking for a little protection and guidance through all this. If any times can be called uncertain, this has got to be one of them. I sure feel better knowing you great detectives are on the case, though. Is there anything I can do to help? I'm hoping to question everyone, just to get a picture of what happened before we arrived. Could you recount your evening for us? Sure. I got here pretty early. Pretty sure I had to travel further than anybody else, which means I had to leave earlier to be on time. But I got to... Excuse me, but how did you get into the city? Your ranch must be pretty far out. Oh, I took the train in. Best way to travel, in my opinion. All you gotta do is sit there and relax, and before you know it, you're where you need to be. Quite so. Please, continue. Where was I? Uh, right. I got here early. Uh, before everybody except for Mr. Cashwallow. He was already here. I'm pretty sure he lives in the neighborhood, though. So I got to see everybody else get here. Seeing how they act when they meet Mr. Miserly. See how they behave when they see each other. I'm kind of a people watcher, you know. And did you see anything unusual or suspicious? I mean, every rich person's weird in their own little way. I don't know how much of it might be useful. I motioned for her to continue. Uh, that spacey bald lady, Madam something, she seemed real intent on talking to Bart Miserly in private. There's definitely some kind of feeling between Captain Debonair and Deidre Krabs, may she remain unclaimed. I can't tell if it's love or hate, though. And I have not seen Cecil Cashwallow since y'all told us not to leave. It's a little suspicious if you ask me. Ever since then, though, I've been staking with Mimi Spud and Sanctimony Brown. Aside from a few trips to the study for prayer, like this one, I mean. And they can corroborate this. Oh, of course. Escorted me to this very room, stood outside it till I was done. It's not safe leaving anybody alone with everything going on. She glanced over to the open door where the young woman and old man still stood. They nodded. Thank you for your help, Miss Foxington Trow. We shall be in touch if there's anything else we need. With that, we walked out of the room and around the corner. Did you get everything you needed? Angelique leaned in close to me, and I could feel her warm breath on my ear. Interview the two in the door, just to buy me some time. Then call everyone to the parlor. Interviewing Miss Spud and Mr. Brown we need not recount, for it is not relevant to the case and was incredibly boring. Some fifteen minutes later, I gathered all the guests and brought them into the parlor. They all began clamoring, assuming some big announcement was due. Suddenly, a part of the wall behind the desk where Bartholomew Miserly still lay sunk in and slid aside, and out stepped Angelique. Good evening, all. You must be curious why I've called you all here. I'm certain you've noticed that even more of your group are not present, namely Madame de Splat and Cecil Cashwallow. First, it is my sad duty to inform you that they too have suffered a tragic fate, and are no longer among the living. Second, I must inform you that their deaths, and many more this night, were at the hands of one Diana Foxington Trow. Many of the guests took a step back, as much as they were able to with so many in the room, but the butcher heiress managed to pull a shocked expression onto her face. What? Now why would I do something like that? Why does any person end the life of another? No one may truly know save for the murderer themselves. But, if I may make a supposition... More suppositions. Be still, my heart. Vivienne was a famous artist, with cutting-edge and thought-provoking pieces that have incited the public and government to act more than once. She was also an outspoken vegan, 
There have been whispers in the art world for a while that her next piece was going to highlight the cruelty of the meat industry. In our cavern-dwelling society, meat is already a luxury. It's space-intensive, requires a lot of resources, and the wealthy clientele are very discerning. So what? I killed her because of whispers and the possibility that it might start some anti-meat movement that might result in regulations? That's pretty flimsy, detective. True, but that was not your only concern. The family farm, as you like to call your vast and lucrative business empire, has not been so lucrative lately. You had been forced to take on financial assistance from one Cecil Cashwallow. And Cecil Cashwallow had some ideas on how to keep your ship afloat. Some layoffs, some cut corners, killing a certain vegan artist at an upcoming dinner party. Maybe he was right, or maybe he was the bigger threat to your business than Vivienne was. Either way, nobody tells Diana Foxington Trow what to do. So you started to hatch a little plot of your own. You knew that Cecil Cashwallow favoured a particular brand of peated wine, a drink that most people find repulsive. And so when you saw an unopened bottle of the stuff on Misley's desk, you assumed that he had purchased it as a gift to Cashwallow. So you injected poison through the cork, just like injecting a marinade into a steak. You thought Cashwallow would be the only one to drink it. Miserly would be blamed for his murder, which is an unfortunate but acceptable sacrifice. But in fact, it was the other way around. Cashwallow, the only guest to arrive before you, brought the peated wine as a gift for Miserly. Miserly wanted to be a good host, so he poured himself a glass to prominently drink in front of his guest. But he had a little bit before anybody else arrived, so he would know how much it would take to hide his disgust at the taste of it. And that was when he ingested the poison that you injected into the bottle. And so, when cocktail hour began, you saw Miserly dead and Cashwallow alive, and you knew your mistake. And then, when I arrived, you knew you would be found out. But then, something happened to you that happens to a lot of murderers. You got lucky. Deirdre Crabs had made a snack in the kitchen and snuck out into the garden to eat. There, she tripped over a loose stone and the fall drove a pestle through her eye socket. Her scream drew Katzen and I away and saved you from an interrogation. You knew it wouldn't be long before this room full of entitled rich people started ordering around service employees, so you made a plan with Cashwallow. He would kill Vivienne, and you would help him escape by the secret passageways that you knew about from a previous visit to the mansion. Vivienne's murder was quickly discovered, and I made it clear that anyone who tried to leave would be presumed guilty. And so you did indeed help Cashwallow enter the secret passageway, but you made sure that he didn't leave it. With Cashwallow missing, everyone would assume that he had fled, and thus was the one who committed the murders. Everyone except Madame de Splat. She knew what you had done, whether through her powers as an oracle or because she happened to witness you, I'm not sure. Either way, you killed her too, because in for a penny, in for a pound at that point. By now you must have been feeling pretty good about yourself. Four murders, three of which were done right under the eyes of the great Detective Angelique. Why, she even interrogated you and you walked away from it without a set of handcuffs on. But while you thought I was running around like a chicken with its head cut off, I was eliminating suspects. The average person might see the murder weapons as random objects, spur-of-the-moment weapons of desperation. But I noticed a theme. They're all religious in nature. Poison, the domain of our god Pithohui. Ninja stars, 
part of the equipment used by servants of Ikro, god of the overworld. A feather stick for feather stick. Each murder was an offering. I spoke with Fifi because sailors are a superstitious lot. I spoke to Lord Vibes to ensure that he had not yet hit rock bottom and turned to religion for salvation. And I talked to you. The butchering business is full of dangers, and you need a lot of gods on your side. Prayers to Petohui to keep your meat fresh and safe to eat. Prayers to Ikro to rescue your workers if they get lost hunting. Prayers to Featherstick for whatever Featherstick does. I have a hard time remembering. Through all this, Diana Foxington Trout remained passive. This is all a very fine story, Miss Detective. Is a story all it is, or do you actually have some evidence of what you're accusing me of? Now, now, Miss Foxington Trow, I'm not finished. The cake wrapper that you suffocated Cecil Cashwallow with. That is a very specific kind of cake, served only on a specific train line, and only served between two specific stops on that line. Thumb and Small West. It has a manufacture date of today, and only one person at this gathering today was on that train when that cake was served. Diana quickly turned towards the door, but stopped short as an elaborate dagger flew past her head and into the doorframe, in the exact same spot as before. Fifi Debonair gave a performer's bow. I quickly moved to intercept the butcher heiress. She was stocky and muscular, but my training in hand-to-hand combat proved the superior weapon. She was quickly subdued, and Angelique contacted Inspector Gestrade to escort her to prison. And so, the events of the evening concluded. Angelique and I made our way back to our bachelorette pad. We had put away a vile killer, one all the more dangerous for the friendly face she put on. But I was not in high spirits. The wealthy and influential, who have the affection of the masses and unparalleled success, are, if anything worse than the people they claim to be better than. A poor person might steal to feed their family. An unhoused person has to move through a world that treats them with hostility. But those who find every door open to them commit great crimes in order to cling to what they have, or because they do not fear that the consequences will ever reach them. A warm feeling rushed through me suddenly, as Angelique took my hand. Thank you once again for your invaluable assistance, Katzen. I could not have made it through this evening without you at my side. In fact, I hope there's never an evening that I have to go through without you at my side. I... She was interrupted by the loud gurgling of my stomach. My face, doubtless already reddened, turned an even deeper shade. (laughs) Well put, Katzen. We never did get anything to eat, did we? Come along. I know a great falafel place not far from here. The emotional moment may have been ruined, but as she ran through the streets of the city, Angelique still kept hold of my hand. The End So that was Be Gay Solve Crimes. Firstly, as I stated at the top, normally in the game you play the detective, not the assistant. Setting the story from the assistant's point of view is a narrative conceit of the Holmes stories, and I carried it over to this story for the same reason. As Angelique is a quasi-divine being, I don't know that I could properly occupy her brain space anyway. Uh, Second, I obviously changed the murder weapons to fit what we've created this season, but everything else was the game as written, from prompts to suspects to locations. 
I don't write narrative fiction, so from that standpoint, I appreciated having the prompts to tell me what happened next and to whom. Obviously, there were a few odd moments, like when when Katzen winked multiple times at Angelique, but I think overall it was an easy process. It didn't really feel like playing a game, though, and it also took a bit longer on the front end. I, I do think the end product was pretty good, though, and having it all written out is honestly making it easier to edit as well. Yeah, I might do something like this again, but I definitely won't do it for every one-player game I play for the show. So, uh, let's talk roles a little bit. This is one time that I will comp to changing around some things. Not the actual dice roll results themselves, but once I had all the roles and I started writing my story, it just flowed better narratively for some things to happen in a different order from what I rolled. Uh, certain scenes kind of got combined, like uh, talking to a suspect and the next murder. Technically, my my game ended by a a scene where you discuss evidence with the assistant, but I think that worked better as a big... Um, like, here's all my evidence monologue, rather than a, a quiet discussion with your assistant. And, you know, I figured, since it didn't change the outcome of my game, and also it's my game, and my podcast, and I wrote a nearly 7,000 word story, and did six different voices for it, I think it's fine if I fuss with things a little bit. So I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, you can check out Be Gay, Solve Crimes, and a lot of other games by Oliver Darkshire, like Gay for the Pirate King and Trapped in a Cabin with Lord Byron. Are you sensing a theme with these games? At twitter.com slash deathbybadger. This has been Pod of Wonder. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod of Wonder. And you can buy some t-shirts and stickers and stuff at society6.com slash pod of wonder. Danny can be found on Twitter at DannyPlaysRPGs. And you can find the games Danny makes at DannyMakesRPGs.itch.io. Morgan can be found on Twitter at MorganTheFay. Faye spelled F-A-E because I know there's like eight different ways to spell Faye. Mike and Maria aren't on social media, like any good unfathomable cosmic being. Our opening theme is Opening by Komiku. Our closing theme is Music is Divine Inspiration by Johan Vandegrift. See you next time, Wanderers. Wanderers.